Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We are very excited to be bringing a show to you tonight, which is full of people doing amazing things. First of all, we're going to hear how Australia could be a world leader in low emissions energy technologies, and um, that's a good news story that we want to share with you. Also, have you ever wondered what might volunteers need an app for? We'll be speaking to the head of a bushfire volunteer organisation about how they have put an app in the hands of their volunteers, and um, it's got really exciting potential to support a lot of people. Before we get to all of that, I am joined tonight by the wonderful Dan Salmon. Good evening. And the incredible Paul Callahan. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Vanessa Taholka. Um, before we get into our interviews tonight, some news. And TikTok's been all over the place. Now, everybody's mother is using it. It's moving into workforce communications plans. Uh, but what's really been going on, well, my workforce anyway, you what's it. really been going on under the hood with TikTok? Paul, tell us a bit about what's emerged. Uh, so... Apparently, and maybe this isn't a surprise to a lot of our listeners, uh, TikTok has been collecting loads of user data um, along with... <laughs> that never happens with anything. Knock me over with a feather. <laughs> really, Paul? I can't um, believe I think it. This has really just sort of exploded over the past couple of weeks, I think, from a lot of different directions, um, including like the, the clipboard stuff that we'll talk about in a second. Um, but... It's kind of part of a larger sort of almost like soft power, like consolidation and things like that. So India uh, recently banned not just TikTok, but 58 um, other uh, Chinese produced uh, apps. Um, Mike Pompeo, the US uh, Secretary of State, came out and has denounced TikTok. Scott Morrison has been talking about, you know, if, if you want all of your data in the hands of a, a Chinese uh, Communist Party, then, wow. then keep using TikTok. Um, so it just seems to be uh, everyone. So it's almost the- as though someone flicked a switch and, and all of the politicians <laughs> went, hang on a minute. As what the half. As the half-ethnically Chinese person on the panel, I would like to say that this is not the promise of the internet that we were hoping for, you know, increasing tensions between India and China. No, we were meant to, you know, merge and join in a and frolic in new platforms. What was significant about this story in particular was that iOS 14's new privacy feature um, has been helping people identify when apps are snooping on your data. So it's just made things a bit more transparent. So that was one of the ways that this TikTok story gained a bit of traction. Um, let's talk about some of the things that it is identifying. It is looking at what apps you have. Um, it's trying to capture, you know, location data that you're sending. It's getting um, all sorts of photo data. It's getting contacts data. You know, these are things that are, are commonly requested on different um, from different apps, but it's rare for one app to request all of these permissions. And it's to the point where people have said, look, TikTok is so designed to be as addictive as any social media platform. It's got every little addictive hook that they could plug in there. And then even if you turn off the ability for some of those things to be shared with TikTok, if you've had it on once, the horse is bolted. You know, your data is now now out there. Um, 
yeah, let's, uh, you know, how do you how do you feel about TikTok with this extra information about the app? <sighs> Look, I, I mean, I'm I'm not surprised. I'm not on TikTok. Um, myself but it doesn't really surprise me that it's a you know it's doing this because they all do it um it's just kind of a bit i suppose what i'm I'm feeling a bit whatever about it to be honest because but it is at one end of a spectrum you would say it's like yeah they all do this to some extent but to do everything to tick every single box of i'm grabbing every scrap of info that i can potentially yeah no definitely that that is a concern and obviously there are the links to you know the chinese communist party and all the rest of it but it's I, I it's actually interesting speaking of that um tiktok have actually to add more complication to it they've actually decided that they're not going to be um operating in hong kong uh after the chinese communist party launched the new security measures on the 1st of july in hong kong so it's it's a this kind of weird dichotomy whereby they've you know everyone's very worried about you know this is a company that's based in china and that and, you know and all of the kind of implications that that carries but then TikTok itself is saying, no, we don't trust the Chinese government in Hong Kong now that these security measures are in place. So it just, it's a very muddy area. Oh, I'm glad that you articulated it was about trusting the government and security measures because it could easily have sounded like, oh, no, we don't want those Hong Kong citizens to have our fun app, app and de-stress with, like, dance-offs. Well, so... <laughs> no, the, the people of Hong Kong have enough to be dealing with without, you know, forgetting right. yet. <laughs> So TikTok haven't removed themselves in a punitive way. No, no, not in a punitive way. Yeah, it's it's it, it's it's a it's a bit weird. I don't know. I, yeah. I, yeah, like it, I think it sounds like there's a lot that we don't know yet. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So then, furthermore, in um in terms of the iOS 14, um, letting you know a bit about your privacy and making it a bit more transparent, something else has become obvious to iOS 14 users, which is that LinkedIn. Um, is another service that has been uh, tapping into what might be in your clipboard information. So even if you don't ostensibly have a clipboard app on whatever device you're using, um, if you are sort of copying and pasting certain things, in in essence, that lives on a virtual clipboard until you paste it somewhere. So anything you've sort of copied and pasted, it's able to to capture. Mm. Um, So so And then that's... uh... And it's, it's kind of even worse because the Mac has the, the universal clipboard functionality. So even things that you're writing on your computer, if you've got your phone nearby or potentially, you know, or potentially traveling to your phone and then being being hoovered up. And it's, oh, you know, it's, it's one, who it's one would of have them. that turned on? But yes, you're right. <laughs> well, I've seen a lot of a lot of kind of uh, infosec people just go and immediately disable this this functionality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but what That's a good point. What are LinkedIn doing with your clipboard data? I mean, I find LinkedIn to be possibly the most dull, benign thing I've ever encountered on the internet. What possible benefit do they have from knowing what you just copied in order to paste into a different I mean, document? I imagine there's a lot of copying and pasting of people's contact details for one, yeah, which um, that's really right. helpful for them. It could also be, like the, the example that I've seen cited has been um, if you – if you have a package coming and you copy the tracking number and then you open, say, the Oz Post app, it like reads the clipboard to know what the tracking number is. So it might not even be functionality that's intentionally like in there. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm, giving, I'm giving these giant corporations the benefit of the doubt, which is always goes really well. <laughs> Some, um, someone needs to, Paul, and I'm glad it was you. <laughs> but 
Yeah, it's sort of it's it's. I think the way it relates to the the TikTok issue is it's it's people's expectations of privacy. Mm. That that exact question, Dan. Like, why why does it need to do this? Like, what is the possible purpose? Like, why does TikTok need to know my GPS coordinates every thirty seconds? Um, because they're following and... you. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, I think it, it's some of this is about when when things become more visible as you know as people deconstructing tiktok or or like ios 14 having these new features suddenly there's a, an immediate jump in sort of people's data literacy or data sensitivity um and a massive flurry of of these companies and organizations trying to get out in front of the bad press it's like your hands in a cookie jar maybe <laughs> yeah maybe it's time to get it out definitely possibly definitely um, so there's one more news piece we wanted to get to before our first interview, Paul. Something about the sovereign cloud. Tell us about it. Yeah. So, so re related to to both of these things is that the um, the government services minister uh, Stuart Robert recently gave a speech uh, at the National Press Club um, and revealed that uh, the federal government is mulling this idea of a sovereign cloud um, for certain types of of data to effectively like stop that data from leaving the country. Um, and this is kind of wrapped up in criticisms of Google and Apple, and especially around the, the COVID safe app, which as we know, has come under a lot of, a lot of scrutiny. Um, from the government's perspective, they're, they're worried about kind of ceding a sort of information sovereignty uh, to these companies um, and effectively Google and Apple through their, their contract tracing API decide, like if they just took that out of a future version of the operating system, it kind of reduces the government's ability to manage the pandemic, um, even if it's a more functional um, piece of piece of work. Um, and so it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting idea. It does, you know, you sort of hear that and you go, yep, seems reasonable that the government should have this kind of you know, space where they keep data that doesn't leave the country. Um, but then you sort of look at the history of the government and their, their sort of their IT projects. Um, and again, like speaking to the COVID safe uh, issue, um, they revealed that while it had had a whole bunch of downloads, they'd only managed to track like 30 contacts with it. And actually those contacts they'd found through traditional contact tracing methods anyway. So it's, it's one of those tricky situations where you can kind of see the justification, but then none of the sort of the reality of the conditions <laughs> on the ground support that justification um, as well. But I'm curious about how, how long this might take and what it might look like, and also how it's part of that same soft power kind of positioning and stance that a lot of these governments are taking around information and data and sort of blaming you know, other countries for bad behavior. So I guess we'll see and we'll report back on that as more information comes. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. The Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering is an independent think tank that helps Australians understand and use technology to solve complex problems. 
Their Energy Forum recently brought together a team of independent experts to explore Australia's potential for a technology-driven clean energy future. Their subsequent submission to the Australian Government's Technology Investment Roadmap discussion paper said that through the use of clean energy technologies, Australia's emissions could fall by two-thirds by the year 2035. Tonight, we welcome Dr John Soderbaum, Chair of ATSE's Energy Forum, to discuss our energy future. Thanks for joining us, John. Oh, thank you very much for having me on your program. It's um, it's absolute pleasure. Uh, it was very uh, nice to have a, a beaming ray of light amidst the news of the week, and we would love to hear more from you about um, about the paper. So, what could you tell us about how Australia is currently performing in the energy sector in relation to low emissions technologies? Well, I mean, Australia is actually doing very well in a global sense um, in terms of the adoption of uh, renewable energy technologies. Uh, we're actually uh, adopting uh, uh, solar and solar wind, uh, photovoltaic panels and wind uh, energy faster than anywhere else in the world. Um, in, for example, in 2019, Australia had you know, the most... Uh, amount of installed solar per person in the world, the fastest deployment rate of solar uh, per capita, and uh, similarly the fastest deployment rate of uh, solar and uh, of PV and wind per capita as, as well. I mean, in, uh, you know, we, we've pretty much added nothing but renewable energy to our capacity, generation capacity in the last few years, mainly because it's the cheapest option. It's... Uh, cheaper than building uh, conventional fossil fuel-powered uh, um, power stations. That, that's, that's an incredible... Um, I mean, that's an incredible kind of thing thing to hear because that that doesn't seem to be the story that, that we're told, like, in kind of our mainstream. Like, where's the where's the gap? Like, what, what... Yeah, why isn't that the story that gets kind of promoted more widely? Well, that's a, that's a, those are all growth rates, of course. Right. So, but we still get an, a very large amount of our generation is from fossil fuel. We have a very high percentage still of of, uh, of coal uh, generation, uh, which is quite emissions intensive, and and similarly and similarly gas. Um, we have been growing very rapidly in terms of our uptake of renewables uh, but we've still got a fair way to go before you know they become the majority of of our generation by by any means and have you given uh any sort of indications as to how long that would be like what what kind of investments and time would we need to i suppose in uh put into actually making uh you know renewable energy the majority of the energy that we use in australia we, we think that we could, um, if with the, with the right policies and, uh, and um, programs in the, the economy, could electrify, could develop um, renewable energy, sufficient renewable energy generation to re to effectively replace gas and coal. And to some extent, we we're almost have to do that. Um, because a lot of the certainly a lot of the coal-fired generation is scheduled to be 
uh, phased out. You know, these power plants only have a limited lifetime, relatively speaking, of 40 years or so. And a lot of our plants are getting to that age uh, and will become more and more expensive to keep in operation and, uh, you know, will, will ultimately need to be replaced by something. And we would argue that uh, uh, photovoltaics, wind and storage can fill that gap. So, John, I wonder if you could walk us through some of the six crucial actions that you've recommended in your in your paper to government? Sure. Um, the, I guess the, the, it comes back to that point I was making earlier about uh, continuing to, to support and uh, encourage the deployment of uh, PV and wind generator electricity. Um, that's going to require um, more work in the area of um, of storage, uh, because one thing about uh, photovoltaic and wind energy, of course, is that the the sun doesn't always shine and uh, the wind doesn't always blow. And if you're relying on on uh, those uh, forms of energy generation, then storage becomes essential. And and that comes can be can be gained through you know, batteries. Uh, Similar to the very the very large battery that was built in in um, South Australia, mm-hmm. and that I mean that battery is a is a sign that uh, so it demonstrates that it's actually quite a a, a good an economic and and money earning exercise to build one of those batteries because they 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 found that they they're making the order of forty million dollars a year at already um, uh, running that battery by prov- providing, using it to provide uh, services to the grid to help st- stabilise the grid when, uh, when, when the uh, renewable energy isn't, isn't there. Mm. Um, so, so, John, if we can just pause for a second and think about that project. Um, I wonder, you know, that came out of a, a conversation between one of the Atlassian founders and Elon Musk and a challenge and a gauntlet being thrown down. But do we actually yeah. have the know-how to get these sort of projects up currently in Australia? Well, I think we do. And I think that's one of the things by having built that battery, um, you know, now it, it's being operated and, and it's actually in the process of being um, um Enlarge the capacity of it. They're increasing the size of the of the battery um, um, by 50 percent, uh, and I think that's 90 percent, 95 percent ready. It's they're just going through the final testing. I understand before it's it's and operational. And I guess one of the one of the things that I expect we'll see is that the people who've built that battery in Australia and who operate it. And they will they will have the opportunity to sell those skills and capabilities to other places in in the country that that want to do the same thing that see that it's doing a good job that see that it's actually a money making proposition and think well we we might get on in on that act. Excellent, that's really good to hear. And then uh, the second recommendation that you had in your paper uh, focused. 
a fair bit on the supporting policy interventions and incentives needed to help facilitate a rapid transition to things such as electric vehicles and electric heat pumps for air conditioning and water heating in buildings and um, the incentives for powering things with renewable electricity. Um, Tell us a a bit about about that recommendation. Well... uh... I mean, Australia has emissions from from many different sources. It's not all all about power generation. We we use um, uh, a lot of, a lot of gas for heating. We use uh, a lot of fuel for uh, you know cars and for transport in general. Um, and one way of reducing emissions from from uh, those sectors is to, in the case of transport, would be to use electric-powered vehicles, and they might be battery vehicles or hydrogen-powered vehicles um, in terms of, of reducing the use of, of gas use in domestic uh, situations for heating and such, which, of course, you have in use a lot in, in Victoria. Um, <laughs> Guilty. And, and I can tell you, we use quite a lot here in Canberra, too, which is where I live. So. Um, the... Um, the you can you can replace gas in the network by by hydrogen and uh, that's you know something that's already being examined and tested in different parts of the country uh, including in, in I know in WA and there's there's a, some experiments going on in in, uh, in the ACT as well that uh, injecting hydrogen into the to establish the feasibility of injecting hydrogen into the natural gas network. And you can do it relatively easily up to a sort of a, a, a certain percentage. Once you get beyond sort of 15, 20% of hydrogen in the gas network, then you you have to make some adjustments to the equipment that uses the gas because hydrogen burns differently from natural gas. But this is not something that's, you know, hard to do particularly. Um, mm. Uh, it's been done before. You know, when when places like Sydney operated on coal gas, the old coal gas system where they gasified coal and distributed that around the city, that was a very large proportion of of uh, hydrogen in that mixture. And when they switched over to natural gas, they had to turn go and change all the the uh, the burners and things like that in 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 uh, appliances throughout the city. So it's not something that's, it's, uh, you know, it's obviously a, a cost and uh, something you have to do, but it's certainly not something we, we have done before and it's certainly something that's not, not impossible. Hmm. So uh, a further recommendation you had was to support and encourage education and skills development needed for the transition to a low-carbon future. Uh, we've recently seen federal government policy come out uh, focusing on, on STEM in the tertiary sector yeah. Does this does this sort of serve that that goal for you, or do you think that they're missing a trick um, in some of the the other sciences? Well, I guess you know, it's um, when you're looking at things like transitioning any sort of system, um, the science skills tell you that it's you can do it, and that's important. Obviously, you you need the people who can. Uh, can actually operate the machinery, the equipment, the technology that's developed that's hopefully cleaner and greener. 
Um, but you also have to um, think about the, the social sciences from the perspective of, of how do you ensure that people are willing to accept new technology and what, what is it that drives uptake um, for new technology. Because so you can have all the technology you want, but if people don't adopt it, then it's not much use. So um, well, I think I, I applaud the uh, effort to increase STEM education because that's certainly an area where Australia has fallen behind in, in recent years. Uh, and so that's good to, to encourage that. But I, I don't think you can sort of do it at the expense or you shouldn't do it at the expense of other areas of, of um, education. It's all important, I guess, is the answer. Oh, yeah, here, here. Um, just, just picking up on, on some of that about kind of the social and cultural change, like in terms of, in terms of what our listeners might be able to do, like um, to support the submission, is there is there kind of an advocacy step or a process that, you know, like people who are, you know, perhaps not, you know, experts but are still engaged in, in these transitions and these topics, is there, are there things that people can do? Well, um, I think people will do things, um, but it, it's all a question of having that the incentives need to be there and it needs to be uh, possible for them to do things. I mean, obviously, people can lobby and 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 participate in in you know in groups that that put pressure on 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 governments to do more. But I mean, I think it's. Uh, I think there's a strong view among the general population that, you know, cleaner and more sustainable energy systems and, and the economy more generally is, is a good thing. Um, uh, the, the key here in so many of these technologies is to encourage the uptake. And, you know, there are a range of possible ways the government can do things like that. Um, I, I look to the example of, of um, PV panels uh, on domestic roofs. Uh, we probably have the highest number of PV panels, you know, the highest penetration of PV panels in the world. And that, that really came about because, A, um, you know, we're, it's a great country for using PV panels because we have very high rates of um, solar insulation. And uh, you know, lots of lots of sunny days, in other words. And um, also, the government offered uh, incentives to encourage people to adopt uh, PV panels, and they were quite successful in driving uptake. And that uptake um, helps to push down the price of the panels. And and I know I know this. You you can see it. Uh, with any practically any technology you you, you care to name, um, the price will will come down as um, the number of the particular number of units of the particular technology are produced, and it, and it applies to PV panels, it applies to televisions, you know, it applies to just anything you like. Um, the and there's there are well established uh, sort of rules of thumb that, that tell you how much the, uh, the price of an, uh, a product declines depending on the, the doubling of its production. Mm -hmm. 
so uh, you know I, I know myself I put I put panels on my roof sort of eight ten years ago and I, I think I've got two kilowatts on my roof which is uh, currently I mean that's a very tiny system by current status the average installation nowadays is over seven and a half kilowatts um, and I know my neighbor across the road uh, installed some installed about that amount himself and it cost him less than it cost me to put the panels on the roof so it the proof is there really that is and that's that an excellent personal anecdote to really support that that case hey um yeah. It's it's super exciting to to hear that you're getting some of the best thinking in Australia um, on to lobbying our government for this great cause. Uh, we really believe in it. Thanks so much for speaking with us tonight. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. John Soderbaum from the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering. And listeners can read more about their research and um, and submissions to government at www.atse.org.au. Thanks so much, John. Thank you very much. Uh, I enjoyed having a chance to talk to you. I hope your listeners found it interesting. I'm sure they did. Thank you so much. Triple R. You're on Triple R, listening to Bite Into It with Paul, Dan and Vanessa. Thanks for being with us. Darren Brown is the Executive Officer of Bushfire Volunteers, a not-for-profit organisation that represents the over 20,000 volunteer bushfirefighters in Western Australia, my home state, actually. They've recently launched an app to support volunteers in their sector. Welcome to the show, Darren. G'day, guys. Great to have you with us. Look, we're all familiar with the bushfire season and um, the frightening facts about how it's only getting longer. There's a massive contribution of volunteer firefighters every year, but we know a lot less about the sorts of support that they have access to. Can you tell us a bit about what it looks like for our volunteer firefighters? But part of the problem, I think, is that no government uh, completely understands the the effort that's contributed by volunteers, and, and we're not just talking about fire volunteers. It's also you know the SES and there's marine volunteers and and even the, the affiliated volunteers, the, the people that provide the food for the for the fires and and the wildlife carers that come in afterwards. But part of the huge problem we've got is a complete lack of recognition or awareness of of, of the extent of the work they contribute. Um, for us, the app um, does three main things, and, and the very first thing, the, the catalyst for the app itself, was uh, we, our volunteers uh, have a very clear record of, of the time they spend out on a fire ground, uh, but nobody seems to record the effort that goes into training and maintenance and cleaning and you know, all, all the things that aren't uh, necessarily frontline um, impacts. Uh, a lot of our volunteers, um, and I know it's the same in Victoria and, and other parts of the world as well, uh, apply for funding, and the funding bodies say, well, just how valuable are you? How much time do you spend? You know, what's the level of contribution you provide? Uh, and the answer is, well, we don't know. Um, so that's really the catalyst of the app. Uh, and um, from our perspective, there's two other things it does, um, but the core of it is, is just trying to get a handle on exactly how much value how essential service volunteers provide to our to our country. Absolutely, it's it's invaluable. Uh, Darren, when you were kind of putting the idea of the app together, 
what I, I would assume that you kind of you spoke to volunteers and you kind of got as much feedback from people in the sector as you could. What were the kind of overarching, um, uh, I suppose, themes and you know issues that people had that you kind of were able to develop into what the app became? The, the development's been a fairly long process. We're, we're actually the, the sort of the peak body, the charity that represents bushfire volunteers in WA, and our, our members are all volunteers. And, and the, the genesis of the project was probably six years ago. Uh, we, we were literally sitting around the boardroom, and every member of the committee is is a busy volunteer in their own, you know, fire brigade. Um, and me, as a, a non-operational person, was list, listening to them saying how much time they were spending away from their families. Uh, and I challenged them to actually quantify it. I, I said, how, how, how much time do you actually spend? You know, I, I'm not a volunteer, I don't know. Uh, and they all sort of looked blank at you know, they, they couldn't quantify it. They had no awareness even of their own time. Um, so, it's, it, you know, it came from, from our volunteer committee who literally had no, no idea um, of the, the time they were spending. And over the years it's been developed with... We've, re we've actually developed it twice. Um, this latest uh, version came from some very expert mobile developers uh, with offices around Australia. Um, Sky Resources, they've donated a lot of their time. Um, a lot of their staff have actually volunteered to help us put it together. Uh, and what we've got now is a really solid app that, that not only allows volunteers some self-awareness, but it also delivers some really important security and, um, you know, personal safety sort of issues. Around Australia, there's various... I think Victoria is probably the only state that doesn't have uh, legislation that actually provides state government compensation for volunteers that contract cancer uh, from volunteering. Uh, something a lot of you know the public don't know is that certain types of smoke actually scientifically proven causes cancer. It, it's, not a, it's not a link. It's an absolute cause. Uh, and one of the challenges is the legislation that's there typically says a volunteer will be compensated if they get cancer as long as they can prove that they attended a certain number of fires you know, of this particular type in the last five years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, that's one of the very, very good spin-off effects uh, of this app. It allows volunteers to not only get some self-awareness and, and sort of home-life balance um, back into their life, uh, but it also gives them that that security that in, if in 10 years' time they end up with some, some sort of health claim, they've got some genuine factual evidence that they can introduce into it to, to make sure that they're properly compensated. Hi, Darren. Uh, Paul here. Um, I'm I'm curious about, I mean, sort of two things based on what you, you were talking about there, but I'll, I'll start with the technology one. Like, from that initial idea, how, as a not-for-profit, how did you approach the design and the development of, the, of that process and how did you find that company that were willing to sort of support the development as well? We we had a really good idea. Um, to be honest, the first uh, iteration of the app was actually developed with an overseas developer. I think the total price was about four or $5,000. Um, so that was affordable for us. Uh, but what we got was a very um, subpar um, app uh, and that was the first iteration probably six years ago. Since then, the technology's changed, the interface has changed. We literally um, agreed late, well, mid last year that we would try again. Um, very, very starved with funding, as you've suggested. We put out an ad in our weekly newsletter. Um, anybody know an, an app developer that might want to help us? 
uh, luckily for us, one of the staff members at Gaia was actually a volunteer firefighter, read our newsletter, went to their boss and said, hey, what do you reckon? Uh, and from there it's grown. They, they've donated probably several hundred thousand dollars worth of time. So we're extremely appreciative. There's a lot of features that we've put on the back burner simply because we can't afford it. Well, hopefully they'll come through in future versions. Uh, but at the moment we've got a functional app that, that delivers the, the ability for volunteers to log their time, the location, the type of work they're doing. Uh, also have a virtual ID card that the administrators can turn on and off remotely. And that's important. We can get into that later if you like. And one of the other really good features of this version of the app that wasn't in the first one is the ability for local businesses to actually offer um, real, you know, discounts and incentives uh, for particular volunteers. And over the years, we've found when there's a when there's a big fire in a particular country town, the, the local Chinese restaurant and tyre shop would love to say thank you to the volunteers with you know a five or ten percent discount but they simply can't afford to hang a sign on the wall that says discount to all volunteers. So what we've developed is the ability for local businesses to, to list a, a discount or a, uh, some sort of incentive, and then they choose which volunteer groups can access it. So in a small country town, that example, the local tyre shop may very well say there's a 10% discount to all of the, the volunteers within 100 kilometres, uh, and we'll offer a 2% discount to any other volunteer that, that comes to the shop, you know, uh, and that's important for two reasons. One is that it allows, it, it connects the dots between local businesses and communities that want to somehow support volunteers, uh, but it also adds an incentive for volunteers to actually use the app in terms of logging their time. And in terms of that, like coming back to, you, to what you were saying about, you know, like logging the information of of particular type of smoke and that leading to having the data for, for things like compensation claims and then those things like the those other features that you're talking about, like were they were they embedded at the start of your thinking or, or have they sort of emerged as ideas as you've been in development with the, the kind of the developers? Oh, to be perfectly frank, that the first iteration was just the log and one of the reasons it failed was because it was a, a pretty uh, mediocre attempt. But in terms of... <laughs> We've you, all been... Know, <laughs> indeed, I mean, just keep trying, it's our philosophy. Yeah, um, yeah. And, the, you know, a significant reason was there was really no incentive, no personal incentive for volunteers to actually use the app. So mid-last year, somebody had a brainwave to, to actually introduce that uh, connection with local businesses and, and offers and discounts, uh, which we thought might be a bit of a game-changer in terms of giving volunteers a, a shorter-term incentive to use it rather than the long-term threat of cancer or whatever. Um, so, and, that, and therefore, it was embedded uh, in this second second go at it from the start. And Guy has been amazing. One of the big issues we have is is connectivity, particularly in the bush. Um, what we wanted was an app that was logging GPS's time, type of work, and uploading the data um, so it was installed locally on phones. Also, not using too much battery power. And our developers have been incredible. That they've come up with a really smart system that that checks whether the phone's actually moving or not. And if it's not moving, it doesn't doesn't pull GPS. It doesn't try to. It doesn't do anything that costs battery life. So it, it only looks for a new GPS coordinate after it's moved significantly, um, which has been a huge game changer in terms of the battery life. Um, so really, really happy. We we've got Guy on board. They've got some very smart. 
um, staff uh, and there's technology well beyond my capacity um, built into the app that we're really happy with. That's an impressive level of observation about user behaviour going on there and uh, I think probably a lot of people wish that more attention was given to practical considerations like battery life and in um, app design. I wonder, you know, what else is, is distinctive about your users um, would probably be that they're, they're motivated by, you know, altruism, you know, a sense of community, that sort of thing. And when you're trying to think about user engagement and trying to get people to use the app, I wonder, did you, did you think about elements of, of tracking in terms of, um, oh, I, don't, I hesitate to use the word gamification, but, you know, say when you donate blood, you know, they certainly incentivize you by saying, oh, you're about to hit this many donations, you know, good on you, and, and that's kind of nice. Do you think that those sort of incentives might, might help um, with engagement with your sort of user base? Yeah, it's it's really good feedback, and I appreciate you thinking um, like that because the first version, the, the version that we've basically been able to afford at the moment, uh, doesn't have that. But certainly, we've had the discussions with the developers, uh, you know, to come up with sort of social uh, connectivity. So within a brigade or a, or a group, we, they can actually run their own sort of competitions. We we're very very conscious that. Um, you know, volunteers do spend an enormous amount of their own personal time and, and we don't want to incentivise them spending more time just yes. to be the person in the brigade that gets the, the badge. Uh, but you're spot on in that we really do need to work on... So from a from a service level, it's, it's a no-brainer. You know, the, one of the big issues that the funding bodies have, like I said in the introduction, is they simply don't know the value of work being done. Uh, so the statistics that could come from this uh, when, we, when we're able to roll it out to multiple services will be invaluable for governments and funders. And I, I know the Prime Minister's um, volunteer payment scheme that he introduced on a whim during the big fires in, in sort of November, December, uh, was based on volunteers doing a particular amount of hours on a, on a fire ground over a particular number of days. The, the obvious question we have is, well, how do you prove that? No. Uh, and our app goes to that. It, you know, it's, it's possible that we might be able to link it with a government system in the future that, that for all volunteers who, whose app registers a certain number of hours, it automatically gets uploaded somewhere and, um, you know, whatever. We, we, there's lots of opportunity there. Um, but the very first challenge we had was that data simply wasn't being collected. Um, so we, version two um, of this new iteration will include a lot more practical features, but also, as you've absolutely highlighted, the need for for a lot of, uh, you know, making it much more fun. It's, it's a tool, uh, but we also want to make sure that it's well used uh, and that'll actually add to the, to the value of the whole thing. So if someone's listening to the program tonight, and we hope that they are, you know, and that they're, and they're a volunteer um, and, a, and a, maybe a, a bush firefighter volunteer, um, could they just go to your website and, and download the app and, you know, how would they get verified or, you know, what's the, what's the process? Uh, yep, we're working... We've reached out to all the sort of fire services around Australia and, and offered the app to them. Um, but like I said at the beginning, it's... Our, our, we've actually named it Essential Service Volunteers, not Emergency Services, uh, mm. because this is valuable for, you know, the Red Cross, uh, wildlife mm. re rescue teams. It, we've built it specifically to be customisable per service. Uh, if they go to the website esvolunteers.org.au, there's a, a form that you can fill in. 
Uh, at the moment, it looks like you can only register as a bushfire volunteer, but we'd encourage anybody from any service to register. Oh, that'll help us. Yeah, that'll help us go to the service itself, like Centrine Ambulance or whatever, and say, look, you, you've had 50 people register. They're currently using an app that's branded bushfire volunteers. How about we change it so that it's it's customised to you with all the right drop-down boxes and all that sort of stuff embedded. It's such a good idea and it's um, it's super encouraging to see uh, such a pragmatic app be launched. Great work, Darren, and we, we'd love to uh, get the word out more. So we'll tweet out about this again um, so that people can catch it. Thanks so much for telling us about the uh, Essential Services Volunteers app this evening. Oh, thank you guys for being interested because it's that's part of the struggle. Uh, as a not-for-profit with no money, we can't afford to advertise. Um, so it's really, really helpful to have interesting people um, show interest in, in what is a really good, genuine charity product. Yeah, well, that's what the Community Broadcasting Network's all about as well. Triple R. This is Bite Into It. We're with Dan, Paul and Vanessa. And Dan is making fun of Vanessa right now, so he gets turned into the third person or something. I don't know. Um, we are about to hit our weird news of the week. What's going on, Paul? Uh, weird news of the week. We've got time for one thing. Uh, and the thing that I found that was most interesting was uh, a VR retelling of Shakespeare's The Tempest uh, is coming to Oculus headsets. Um, so it's a VR kind of theater thing. But the thing that makes this interesting to me is that um, live actors take part in it. So it's not just you in kind of a virtual world by yourself. Um, it's got a single actor who, in the, the game's narrative, was supposed to play uh, Prospero, but due to coronavirus, uh, their in-person performance was cancelled. Um, and I, <laughs> I feel like we're seeing a lot of TV, which is just like, I'm stuck in my house and I'm learning things about myself. <laughs> so, so this is part of a VR version of that with Shakespeare. Um, so you, it's set up like theatre. You buy a ticket for a time slot. Um, you and your friend can do that, but there's no guarantee that you'll be in the same one. Um but it just it feel like it's one of those things. Games are always talking about. Let's do Shakespeare. Let's do Shakespeare, and it kind of takes theater makers to go. Well, actually, let's do VR and let's see what things we can do with that. So, um, so do we know if the audience is fixed, or do are they moving around the action? Do they get to follow things? Oh there's yeah. A, there, there's a trailer where you get to. You know, you get to interact, you get to kind of speak and see and, and watch and do all those things you get to do with an Oculus Quest. Oh, I love oh, it, love that it. Is so okay, cool. so uh, it's that could be by... fun for the Tempest. Yeah, uh, we want to say a massive thank you to our guests this evening, Dr. John Soderbaum from the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering on our clean energy future, and Darren Brown, Executive Officer of Bushfire Volunteers on the Essential Services Volunteers app. Thanks to our hosts Dan and Paul. Thanks to our talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy. We been bite into it. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.